Welcome to HOWC Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. This is a theme that goes throughout Scripture. And there are those who would minimize the importance of the will. But without it, none of Scripture makes any sense. And if you really don't understand what the will is, you're not going to really understand what Jesus is doing, the purpose for the need of salvation, what redemption is, what atonement is, what any of this is. So it's very important to understand. So this lesson is going to take us from Genesis to Revelations because this is a theme that has gone on from creation until the return of Jesus because it's a war. And the war is over your will. That's what it's all about. It's what it's always been. We start at the beginning, in the beginning. Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. For those who don't know, we are a three-part being. We have a physical body. We have a soul and we have a spirit, right? We're made in the likeness of a three-part God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but all three work together. We are a three-part being made in his likeness. We have a spirit, we have a soul, and we have a body. All three are supposed to work together, but sometimes they war against each other since the fall. The soul, according to scripture, God is spirit. When he breathed his breath, his ruach, his spirit, into the physical flesh, the body of man, he became a living soul. So where spirit touches flesh, a soul is created. The soul was the creation. The dust was already there. God formed it into the body. His spirit was already there. But where the spirit touched the flesh, the soul is what was created. That's really the creation that the war is over. God created the soul. The soul is the mind, the will, and the emotion. You can sum it up by saying the soul is your will. The things you feel, basically what I think, what I want, what I feel. My will. That's what the soul is. It's the thing that bridges between. Because the spirit gives influence. That's why spirit is often synonymous with character. Because the spirit influences, the soul or the will decides if it believes or trusts or has faith in what that spirit is influencing. And if it does, then the body will act. So you have faith that causes works. The thing that is in between is the soul, the will. That's where the battle is. So in the beginning, God created this new creation, the souls of men. And then he began to teach and to test his new creation, this will, this soul. Why is he teaching and he, is he testing our soul, our will? Because he wants to give it a place in his eternal kingdom, but he has to know that he can trust it. 
before he does it. The whole reason we're here. Why was man even created? God wants to give us a place in his eternal kingdom. He wants to give us power and authority. He wants us to have purpose and position to rule and reign with him. But he's not going to just give it to anything because by its nature, a will makes choices. So can he trust the choices that we'll make? Can he trust us to trust him? His instructions, his leading. More than anything, he wants fellowship and he wants to be loved. And you cannot love if you don't have a will. You love from your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. If you love, you have to love by choice. If there's no choice, there's no love. If you are programmed to bring about the actions, if you are forced, it's not love. So in order for us to love God, we have to choose to love him. That, the nature of love is a choice. So if he wants a creation that will fellowship with him and who will love him, it has to be by choice. But then there's the conundrum, can he trust that with kingship and his eternal kingdom? So he puts us on earth to make choices. That's why from creation, from the beginning, there were two trees in the garden. It's always been a testing ground from the beginning to the end. It starts with simple tests and choices all the way through to revelations where the choices get more and more difficult and more complicated. But really, it's about seeing if he can trust us, if he can trust our will. And if we can comprehend that there are consequences to our choices. Will we trust what he said? He puts Adam and Eve in the garden. Will we trust that he loves us and that his instructions are best for us? Or will we trust our own will, logic, and perceptions, which can be manipulated by the one who caused the last rebellion in heaven? Something that God is preventing from ever happening again because he doesn't want to lose any more children. For those that understand, Lucifer was an archangel in heaven. He was a very powerful being, and he caused a rebellion. So we know by the records of Scripture that the angels have free will. Because you cannot rebel if you do not have free will. The very nature of rebellion is willingly choose to stand against God's instructions and will. If there is the rebellion... There is free will. You cannot rebel except but by free will because you have to choose to stand against God's will. So the angels rebelled. And it caused all manner of problem for who knows how many thousands of years. God doesn't want it to happen again. He's going to make us even higher than the angels with more power and authority. So we have to be tested. If we can get through this lesson tonight, all of Scripture will make more sense and we'll also understand where our power really is. So God tests us. He started with the tree of life, which represents trusting what God says is right. That's why it was a tree that produced good fruit. You will see this theme throughout all of the Scripture, the tree that produces good fruit and the tree that produces bad fruit. If you trust what God says is right, you will produce good fruit. If you trust what you think is right, it will produce bad fruit. So there was the tree of life. If they would trust what God says, they could partake of its good fruit. 
But then there was also the tree of knowledge, right? That knowledge represents trusting in what you think is right. Adam and Eve trusted what they thought was right, what looked right, because they believed the lies of the enemy who played on their pride. The enemy will always play on your pride. He will tell you things, but it will be lies. He will try to get you to think that things are right that are contrary to the Word of God. If you believe it, you will partake of the tree of knowledge, which is bad fruit. So the tree of knowledge represented what they thought was right. You could call it a tree of self-knowledge or of self-will or of pride. Ultimately, it always comes back to pride. But it produced bad fruit. This theme carries throughout all of Scripture. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, it says, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, this was Joshua going into the promised land speaking to the people, then choose ye this day whom you will serve. They, they come out of Egypt, they get to the promised land, the first thing they have to do is make a choice. It's always going to be about a choice. Choose ye this day whom you will serve, whether it be the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Ammonites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is a decision to be made in every circumstance and situation. The children had to make a decision in Egypt whether they were going to believe what God said, as crazy as it sounded, and follow him out into the wilderness or stay in Egypt. If you did what you might think is right, it would make sense to stay in Egypt. They had the river, they had food, they had all these things. Now God did, in mercy, bring the plagues to kind of help to break their faith in those things. But nevertheless, it still took faith to follow God out into a wilderness where there was no water, there was nothing. This was a very desolate, desolate place. So there's a choice. God tells them once they get the promised land, there's this whole list of blessings and there's a whole list of cursings. If you believe what I say and obey, you will be blessed. If you don't, the consequences will be this. There's always a choice. David and Saul, when God first starts putting kings in Egypt, there's a point at which there's a choice to make between David and Saul. We get to Jesus, and even at his crucifixion, the people are given a choice, Jesus or Barabbas. And they chose to let Barabbas free and to crucify Jesus. Or you might even say the real choice was Jesus or the cross. Because Jesus represents what God said is right. And the cross represents what they thought was right. It's going to always come down to what I think, what I feel, what I want, what the devil is speaking to me and my pride wants to agree with. The devil will flatter and fluff and work yourself against the truth. But the word of God stands and you have to choose where your faith is because God is testing the souls of men. He wants to know who he can trust to let in. And in the end, all those that prove that they can't be trusted because they keep listening to Satan will end up in the quarantine that was created for the Satan, the fallen, and all of those that are rebellious 
and selfish and trust in their own will and don't trust God. Because ultimately God does what is best for everyone. He does what is right. And we have to believe that. We have to trust in his love. We have to lay down our pride and recognize that we don't always know what's right. But God does. So just know that you are always being tested. In the end, there will be a final choice for all of humanity between Jesus and the Antichrist. What God says is right. He lays it all down in the scripture. Or what you think is right. It will be very difficult to follow Jesus. The enemy will speak many lies and your pride will want to believe it. When it says that you have to take this mark to buy, sell, or trade, to have anything of this world, and you have to be willing to walk away and say, you know what, I'm just going to trust God, live or die, to live as Christ, to die as gain. That is a hard decision to make, but you have to be willing to give up what you think and trust what he said. There's a better world coming. This world is not our home. We're not living for this. Keep trusting. Because ultimately, anything that stands against the word and will of God is anti-Christ. Right? Jesus came to give us the example. Not an example. He was the example. We are Christians. That means we are aspiring to be like Christ, to follow his teachings. There's a scripture that says that if we believe him, then we ought to walk as he walked, basically to be as he was to the best of our ability, to pray, to seek him, and he will empower us daily and teach us and lead us to do that. Jesus said what? Not my will, but thy will be done. The Antichrist is self-willed. I'm going to read you two passages. We're not going into a big study on the Antichrist, but I'm going to read you two passages because these are two passages that give you a lot of descriptive description of the Antichrist and his followers. And I want you to point out how much of it is about being self-willed. Because tonight I'm bringing a light to the war of the will. What we think, what we feel, what we want our plan, our desire, our emotion, our logic, you've got to humble yourself and lay it all down and just trust the word of God. Doesn't have to make sense. But usually God will make it make sense. You might have to take a step of faith at first, but he will bring understanding after you do. But you're just going to have to take it by faith for the time being. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, this is the description of the Antichrist, it says, in orms or armies, the military, shall stand on his part, they'll be on his side, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. They're going to do things that are going to cause the church to lose its strength by polluting it. And shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt with flatteries. So those who are in sin and not being um, faithful to the blood covenant of Jesus, because all covenants have ordinances, there are uh, commandments in the New Testament, there are things that Jesus said we have to do. So if you're not living by his teachings, you're not following his commandments, then you are 
what it says, those that did wickedly against the covenant, those who don't want to do what Jesus did but still want to claim to be Christian, it says he's going to flatter them. He's going to corrupt them. He's going to lead them. He's going to make them think that they're okay and that they're something amazing, and he's going to use them to corrupt others. That's already happening. But the people that do know their God, the ones who know the truth, who know who the real God is, they will be strong and shall do great exploits. So those who know the real God, the real gospel, he's going to empower with anointing and they'll do great and mighty things. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Those who understand it will teach. Yet they shall fall by the sword. Hmm. The real ones, the ones that know their God, they're doing exploits, they're doing miracles, they're instructing many. God's still going to allow some of them to be killed, to fall by sword, by flame, by captivity, imprisonment, by spoil, many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries. So as they begin to fall, God's going to pour out more power. He's going to allow more anointing to flow. He's going to help them with a little help. But as that happens, it's going to draw people to them and they're going to flatter them even more and that's going to corrupt them even more because they're going to start to get prideful. They're going to start to get off track. And some of them of understanding shall fall to test the others and to purge and to make them white. So why is God allowing all of this to happen? There's a testing going on. He's purging. He's purifying. He's seeing who is going to keep their faith, who's going to keep trusting and believing what he said. Even to the time of the end, because it is yet for an appointed time. And the king shall do wickedly, speaking of the Antichrist, uh, and the king shall do according to his will. So the Antichrist will do according to his own will. Out of all of this, the Lord is telling us things that are going to happen to the church, things that the Antichrist is going to do. When it comes down to this, the very first description it gives you of the Antichrist is that he does his own will. Anyone who thinks it's okay to do what they want to do is working under a spirit of Antichrist. It is anti-Jesus because Jesus did only what the Father said to do. Not my will, but thy will be done. It is the opposite of what he taught us. In fact, the only commandment in the Satanic Bible is do as thou will. Do what you want. Self-will. Even the Satanists know that it's a, a war of the wills. It's all about trying to get you to use your free will to choose Satan's will. You have to understand this because if you don't even think there is a will, you've already lost the fight because you're not going to guard what's right. The Antichrist will do according to his own will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. So there will be a time period that God allows him to prosper, but not indefinitely. Because... It is a testing. All right, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 is another very clear description of the Antichrist and his followers. 
2 Thessalonians 2, 3 says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day will not come except there come a falling away first. Talking about that when the Jesus returns, there has to be a falling away from the truth first. And the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, that's the Antichrist, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped. So that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I yet told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might reveal in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. The mystery, iniquity means lawlessness, not following the law. Any spirit that causes you to not want to follow the law, rather, it's talking about God's law, and let's just be honest, if God said it, it's the law. He is the judge. If he said it, it's the law. We don't have to go to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are moral laws, and we do have to obey those moral laws. But anything God says is law, because he's the judge. If he said do it, do it. It's the law. But if you have a spirit that does not want to obey the law, then that is what iniquity is. And now we know, uh, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit will allow it for a time. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonder. So it's saying Jesus will come and destroy the Antichrist, but not until after the working of Satan when he will come and he will have a lot of power and he will move in lying wonders. So they will be miracles and wonders, but they will endorse a lie. We see God do miracles and wonders all the time to endorse the truth, but you don't use the miracle solely as your evidence. Jesus said, use the fruit, check the character, see if it's producing the character of God, love, joy, peace, humility, uh, faithfulness, patience, those things. Because even the Antichrist, even the devil can perform miracles and his miracles will actually endorse lies. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So all they had to do to be saved was actually to receive the truth. Jesus brought us the truth. He is the truth, the way, and the life. But they loved their unrighteousness, so they refused to receive the truth, and they were not saved. They continued to hold on to what they thought was right. And for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this is a dangerous thing. This reveals that if you choose to refuse to receive the truth that God has made available to you, he will actually allow you to become so hardened that you can't receive it, that you don't want to receive it. You will keep the lie. You will stay lost in the delusion. He'll let you have what you want. You want it. I don't want the truth. I want. I like this sin. He'll let you stay in it. I often think about the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus and Jesus approaches him with the same language that he used for all of his disciples whenever he called them to follow him. That means this man could have been one of the 12 disciples, you know, had he been willing to be obedient and to give up the things that was needed. 
But when he didn't do what Jesus said, Jesus, it says Jesus was sorrowful. It broke his heart, but he didn't stop him. He didn't force him. He didn't chase after him. He let him go. He'll let you have what you want. He's already done his part. More than enough. The truth is available to us. We choose to receive it or we'll face the consequences because we're the ones being tested, not him. Now, looking at how clearly the Antichrist and his followers fall into the category of those who are self-willed, I want to contrast that a little bit against Jesus and his followers. In Matthew 12, verse 49, we read this, And he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples, Jesus speaking, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So who are truly accepted into the family of God? Those who do the will of the Father that is in heaven those who do his will. John chapter 6, verse 3, For I came down, Jesus speaking, from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. So Jesus did the Father's will. He didn't do his own will. He forsook his own will. And then he says those that are his brothers and sisters, those that are accepted into the family of God, or those who have also forsaken their own will, and do the Father's will. Yet very clearly we see that those that serve the Antichrist or another spirit are those who do their own will. Jesus very clearly gives us in Matthew seven nineteen. we read it quite often because it's so simple and plain. It says, Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Put very simply, Jesus is saying, just because you call yourself a Christian or because you call me your Lord, that doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Just because you claim to be mine doesn't mean you're mine. In fact, this scripture very clearly tells us that most people who think they're going to heaven actually won't make it in. Oh, you're being judgmental. No, I'm reading you the words of Jesus. He's about to say it. It says many and only a few actually make it. You better contend for the faith if you want to be one of the few. Because it says those that took the easy path were listening to wolves in sheep's clothing that told them it's going to be easy and broad and everyone's going. If you're following the crowd, you're going the wrong way. Because most of them didn't make it. You better follow the instructions of Jesus and put down what you think is right. Lay down your will it has to be crucified. If there's a battle going on in the mind, the Bible says bring it into captivity. Make it subject to the teachings of Jesus. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out devils? and have done many wonderful works, and I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that worketh iniquity. Again, iniquity specifically is breaking the law. 
is not doing what God said. Sin is a failure to obey God's commandments. Now, I'm not talking about Old Testament rituals that Jesus already fulfilled. You understand that. But if God said to do it, it's a commandment. So if God said you have to forgive, that's a commandment. That's New Testament. If God says you have to abstain from fornication and sorcery and drugs and all these other things, if you have to abstain from perversion and anything that it says, it is a commandment. And we have to make a decision if we're going to come into agreement with his will or continue to walk in ours because that's the only two choices. We have a free will, but ultimately your free will just gives you the choice to what spirit you're going to listen to. Are you going to listen to God, the leading of the Holy Spirit, or are you going to listen to the enemy? Because spirit influences, the will makes the decision what it's going, what influence it's going to listen to, and then it causes the body to take action. So you have a will, but these are not your ideas. They're coming from either God or from the enemy. You make a choice which one you're going to follow. Jesus made a way for us to have the power and authority by his grace to say, get ye behind me, Satan. I choose to obey God. There is no more excuse. We have to make a choice. He said, I will profess I never knew you because you are still working iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, Jesus speaking, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon the rock. So Jesus is very clear here who gets into heaven, those who do the will of the Father, and then he tells you, I'm telling you what his will is. If you hear what I'm saying and do it, you will be wise. But if not, you're going to be counted among the many who trusted in what they thought was right. Did you surrender your will to his in every circumstance and situation of your life? Ultimately, it comes down to this. A true conversion, right? People talked about, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Are you saved? Jesus said, have you been converted? Have you been changed? There has to be something that happens. A true conversion is when you kill your will and receive a new one. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. So who I was died. Nevertheless, I live, but not I. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said that who I was was crucified. But yet his physical frame is still there. So what actually died? The soul, the will. He had to be willing to kill his own will and take on crisis. He says, it's no longer I that live, but Christ in me. So what is living in him? What died and got replaced? His will, for Jesus' will. And if that hasn't happened, then you're not converted. You're not actually saved. If you're still living your will, you are not saved. And that's a very dangerous place to be. That's the many that thought they were going to heaven. 
And when they got there, they were like, whoa, why can't we get in? And he said, because you weren't doing the Father's will. It's that simple. If you're still living your will, you're not there yet. It won't happen automatically. Crucifixion does not happen on its own. Right? It doesn't say the will died. He said crucify. You have to kill it. Crucifixion by its nature requires action to be taken. It is an intentful putting to death of something. Because the reality is this. There are some that teach that we don't even have a free will. And that's a very dangerous teaching. When you understand what is really happening in scripture. If you think that you don't have a free will. Then you will by default be self-willed. Because you will not be willing or even aware of the need to crucify that will daily. We have to intentfully and purposefully say no to our own will. But if you think everything just happens automatically and we don't have a self-will, you're not going to fight that fight. You're not going to contend for the faith. You've already lost it because you don't understand the war that you're in. You don't even think the war is real. And many that speak it are just repeating things that they've heard and they don't really understand even what they're saying. And ultimately, I don't think they really even fully believe it because they don't really comprehend what they're repeating. But the Bible is clear that we have to put the flesh to death. Now, we put it to death daily in a way. If you truly get saved, you are going to crucify your own soul, your own will, that old ghost. And you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to release who you were and receive something different. There will be a conversion. There will be a change. We will give up our unrighteousness, receive his righteousness, be washed in the blood, atoned for, cleansed, forgiven, receive his Holy Spirit. It will teach us, empower us, direct us, give us the strength to resist the enemy. But there will always be an influence. Now, you won't have the drive because that thing won't be in you, driving you, possessing you, steering you. Now Jesus is doing that. You'll have a different drive. But just like when the enemy used to control you and Jesus was on the outside knocking at the door of your heart, speaking, saying, repent, that's not right. Come to me. There's a truth. Dig deeper. Seek me. You'll find me. And you knew that there was something wrong with this bend that you had. That's because that thing is still inside controlling you, but Jesus was on the outside. At a true conversion, a true salvation, when that thing is crucified and Jesus replaces it, now he's on the inside. He's the one leading. You have a different drive. You have different desires. But that enemy is now on the outside, knocking at the door, trying to influence, saying, hey, hey, it's okay. Why don't you just come back to those old friends? Why don't you just do that old thing? Why don't you just... So it's still there trying to influence. But there is a very different uh, placement. It's not driving you anymore. You can willingly choose to go back to it, and then you'll be worse than you were before. But it's a choice you're willingly going to have to make because the power is there to say no, to say, get ye behind me, Satan. No, you, you don't control me anymore. 
Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. You have to understand the war that you're in. Because if you willingly choose to go back to the enemy's camp, the Holy Spirit ain't going with you. And then you just swapped. And now there's more in than before. And Jesus is on the outside, like in the, the books and the, the churches in the book of Revelations. He was at the door knocking. Hey, I'm stuck outside because you got all these other spirits in there. And I'm not coming in. I'm not sharing my glory with another. You got to make a decision. The old soul is removed so that you won't have that uncontrolled drive to do what you did before. But the enemy will always be at the door knocking, trying to get back in. So be vigilant, watch what you agree with, and stay full of the Holy Spirit. Don't ignore or grieve him and be found empty and defenseless when the enemy comes knocking. I don't think we have it in here, and I'm not going to read it, but Jesus talks about how he's stronger, he's the strong man, he come and he overpowers the enemy and kicks him out. But then it says those spirits go out and wander in dry places and then when they come back, they find the house empty. Well, what happened? If the Holy Spirit kicked them out, why is it empty? You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can choose to not follow its leading. The Bible says not to hold grudges or anger or offense or not to use uh, the wrong kind of communication, foul language, not to willingly commit sin or you'll grieve the Holy Spirit. If you don't follow its leading, it's not following you. You got to follow him. He'll depart. And if that house is empty, those spirits come back, he says, but then they bring seven friends with them, and the latter end of the man is worse than the first. So that's what happens. And, and that's I just um, edited a podcast that's coming out pretty soon about can Christians be possessed, and it covers a lot of that. That's what happens when a lot of people think they're a Christian but are possessed. Can Satan possess that which belongs to God? But possession means you belong to. You can't belong to both. People just don't comprehend how quickly the script can flip because they don't understand the war of the souls and it's all about agreement. It's a very serious thing. That's why he says to contend. In Jude chapter 1 verse 3, it says, Behold, when I gave all diligence to write unto you, this was Jude speaking, one of the brothers of Jesus, of the command of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there were certain men crept in unaware who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, which is all manner of sin, a desire, an unrestrained sin. No, no, no desire to not do it, just whatever I want. It's okay, I'm, I'm okay with it. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude warns of um, fallen angels and things in this chapter, basically talking about those demonic influences that lead men to think that it is okay to sin. This was happening all the way back in the Old Testament with Balaam. He says, you have to contend for the faith. It is a fight of faith. It's a fight to keep the faith in what God said. Or are you going to keep surrendering your will for his? Because if you don't, it is sin. And sin cannot enter into heaven. 
James, another brother of Jesus, chapter 4, verse 6 says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So, James equates pride to those who don't submit to God. If you trust your own will, if you don't trust what he says, you're moving in pride. You have to surrender your will to his in every area of your life. Because what a lot of us like to do is give up this one big thing and think we're great and we just harp on that, but we do what we want in every other area. No, it has to be every area. We no longer live, but he lives in us. And there's a reason for it. I'm about to get to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 says this, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. This was Paul talking to people who understood the Olympic Games, and he's saying everybody's running this race, but they're not all going to win it. So run that you might obtain. Run this race of faith like you want to win it and like you understand that not everybody makes it. Contend for the faith. Take it seriously every day. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. He was talking to people who understood the Olympics because these were people in Rome. And he was saying, look at these athletes. Look at how hard, look at what they put into trying to win this prize. They strive for the mastery. And, and you think that your salvation, your eternal soul is not worth a little effort, a little contending for, a little discipline? Look at these athletes, how they, they diet and they exercise and, and they sacrifice. And you're not willing to fast and to sacrifice and to get up and do what the Lord wants you to do. Is this not more important than the race they're running? It's okay to think that we can put forth all of this effort for careers and for sports and for all of these things, but oh, put forth a little effort for Jesus and, and you're crazy. That's works, right? Right. No, but if the root is there, the tree will produce some fruit. Well, there's not a story in the Bible that would make much sense if there wasn't something produced by the, their faith that would give us evidence right. to this day. Right. You will produce fruit. There will be works. Because again, going back to that three-part being, there's three parts of us. There is a spirit, there is a soul, and there is a flesh. And every part of it has to do its part. So the spirit receives the word in faith, influences the soul, which then, if you truly believe it, God empowers through grace, through Jesus, after the souls are transferred because you're, it's a divine exchange. You give up yours and take on his. That's where the grace is, which then empowers the flesh to do the works. So no, it's not all about works. It's not all about grace. It's not all about faith. It's all of it working together. You can't have any one without the other. If you have only one, then you don't have any of it. You need all of it. But this is important what Paul says about this race, and he's telling them be willing to, to 
put out more than what these athletes are, are running for. Now they that do it, do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we do it to obtain an incorruptible. So therefore run, not as uncertainly, so do I fight, not as one who beateth against the air, but I keep my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself might be a castaway. This is such an important passage. Because this is Paul, not before he was saved. Paul says, after I've preached all of this truth to all of you, if I stop putting my body in subjection, then I myself will be a castaway. In other words, if I choose to go back to the lust of the flesh, I can go to hell right now. And that's a very serious thing. Keep fighting the fight of faith. What is the last thing Paul said before his execution? I have fought the fight. I have kept the faith. All throughout his race, he contended. He kept <coughs> believing. He kept sacrificing his will for Jesus. And that's what we are all called to do. God is no respecter of persons. He expects the same from every one of us that he expected from Peter and Paul and James and all the rest. Kill your will and take on crisis. When you die, you give up the ghost. When Jesus died on the cross, what did it say? He gave up the ghost. When you die, you give up a ghost. You know, it's a very interesting thing that I have observed. Being around people as they pass, being in ministry all my life, having form and seeing animals pass and hunting and seeing animals pass. You know the moment most times that the soul leaves. There's usually a jolt. There's a jerk. And you know, okay, it, it's done. Happens most times. Crazy thing is that in a deliverance, and a lot of times in salvation, you'll see the exact same thing. There's that jolt, that moment that thing leaves. When you truly are converted... When you truly give up the ghost, you're releasing that old soul, that old will, and then receiving Jesus's. There are people who specialize in deliverance ministry. The reality is this, all ministry is deliverance because nobody has ever truly been saved unless they were delivered. It's not a special work that needs to happen after salvation or anything like that. If it needs to happen, it's because the person was never actually saved. Or they were, but they lost it because they came into agreement with something else and didn't realize it. Salvation is deliverance. Because you have to be delivered of that old spirit and receive a new one. The spirit of Jesus. When you die and you give up the ghost, which is that old soul or the will... You can then take into you the Holy Ghost, which is what was released when Jesus died, which is his soul, his will. If the soul contains the will, it dies. It's released. When Jesus died, he released the Holy Ghost, his will. We receive it. That's the divine exchange. That's what changes everything. 
The Bible talks about the life being in the blood. If you go back to the original Hebrew, that word life was actually nefesh, which is their word for soul. The soul is in the blood. Jesus poured out his blood to save our soul from hell. He poured out his soul to save our soul. A soul for a soul. That's why only blood could be used for atonement throughout all of scripture because the soul is in the blood. A soul for a soul. The will is the soul. It's the will that sinned against God. It's the will that made the decision. So it had to be a soul. The will for the will. If you can understand that. Jesus' blood atones that we can be cleansed and forgiven so that we can come before his throne of grace and ask to receive his Holy Spirit. That will then lead us, teach us, empower us daily to do God's will. That's what real grace is. Power, favor, and influence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus indwelling us. His will in us. The Father's will in him. Redemption and equipping. Jesus doesn't just forgive us and leave us empty. He fills us with the greatest resource of heaven. Romans chapter 6 verse 1 touches on this when it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? If that spirit has gone, why would you even be influenced to do it? Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? This is what baptism really is. You are symbolically going down and dying. You are showing the world what you are confessing is happening to you, that you are willing to release your will. You are dying to self. Everything you want, you're allowing it to go. You're going down the old person. It's dying with Christ. You're being raised into newness of life and receiving his spirit. Baptism is a symbol of this process. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was risen from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also shall walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should no longer serve sin. So if that spirit is cast out, you don't have to serve it anymore. It has no power, authority, and dominion. If you serve it, you serve it willingly and you grieve the Holy Spirit, but you have the authority to say no. Call out to Jesus every day. You got to keep that vessel filled. Remember, if it finds the vessel empty, it's going to come back worse. You got to fill that vessel. Prayer, praise, the word of God. Uh, spend time with him. Ask him. Ask, ask, ask. The new covenant is all about asking. Every day you're going to have to ask him. Fill me up. Give me the grace. Uh, help me fight this battle. Give me wisdom for this. You have to ask for everything. But spend that time with him to constantly be saturated by his presence. It's available to you. But it's going to come down to who are you listening to? What leading are you following? 
And if you don't spend time with him, then you don't know which direction to go. So it's so much easier to just walk off the path and follow any old voice that comes along. You got to spend time with the master to know his voice. So it's important that you abide, 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 abide. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is free from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So it's not just the letting go of the old, but the receiving of the new. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. So if we receive his Holy Spirit, that spirit is eternal. We live forever with him. When we die, that's what God sees. When we go before him in heaven, his son, he sees that spirit, that soul, that will, and that's what is rewarded. That's why we rule and reign with him because of what we receive from him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that we he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall have no dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now grace is not mercy. People will say we're not under law, we're under grace, but really they mean mercy. Grace is not mercy. Grace is a person. The Bible calls it the spirit of grace says it would be released whenever the sun was pierced on that day. The spirit of grace is the Holy Spirit. It's the personal presence of Jesus. When you receive it, there is power in it. The definition of grace is favor, influence, uh, and power. You have favor because you receive the spirit of Jesus within you. Therefore, you have favor with the family because you're part of the family because Jesus is in you. You have power because Jesus is in you. And you have divine influence because that spirit is in you now influencing you. Grace is the Holy Spirit. It is the power of God. So mercy is not giving you what you deserve. But grace is giving you a presence you do not deserve. It's giving you Jesus. It said grace is giving you something you don't deserve. We'll make it more specific. It's giving you a person you don't deserve. Jesus living on the inside of you. The power to overcome. Can the devil overcome Jesus? No. The power is available. You have to use the grace. Don't frustrate the grace. Don't confuse it with mercy. Don't continue in the sin. Don't try to tell him that the devil is stronger than him and continue to go back to that temptation. Cry out to Jesus and let him save you. Walk in righteousness. Not in your own strength. You can't do it in your own flesh. You're going to have to crucify and call out to God and let him empower you. But have faith. It can be done. All right, Romans 8, chapter 9 says this, But ye are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, if you're saved. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you, all right, so now we have been crucified with Christ, we've released that old ghost, that those old spirits, and we've received Christ in us, all right? So if that has happened, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Oh, 
We can't have both. We're going to have one or the other. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not his. But if you do, you are. You're going to have one or the other. You have to reject one and receive the other, which means you're going to have to start not listening to one and start listening to the other. You have to make a decision. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to live after the flesh. For if we live after the flesh, we will die. But if, and that's talking about being sent to hell. But if we, through the spirit, do kill the deeds of the flesh, put them to death, then we shall live, talking about eternal life. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So who are the sons of God? Those that are led by the Spirit of God. Remember, Jesus said, who's my family? Those who do the will of the Father. If you're led by the Spirit, you'll do the will of the Father. You'll be part of the family of God. If not, you're not making it. So we have to make a decision. Again, remember the beginning of the message was all about choices. We're going to have to make some choices tonight. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage unto fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ Jesus, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. So if we have his spirit, we're going to suffer. People are going to hate us. Those who don't have the spirit are going to persecute us. Because not only do they do their own will, but they are convicted by your obedience to do God's will. And they will hate you for it. And that's a fact. If everybody loves you, you're probably not a Christian. Jesus, we may, we talked about this before service. Jesus did, and that doesn't mean that you go be mean and, and hard-hearted and make everybody not like. Jesus did everything right, and he was despised and rejected. If you do everything right, if Jesus is living in you and living through you, and you are obeying him and doing what he says, you will be despised and rejected too. People will not like it. But you have to have enough faith to look, put your will down like Jesus did. I mean, Jesus wept. He cried. He sweated blood as he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. It's not easy, but you have to put your will to death to, to follow God, to be obedient, to let his will live out through you. But it is always best. It will bring a glorious end. Trust it. Trust it. All right. Now, we have to understand eternal life. Because this whole thing is about putting your will to death so that you can have eternal life. Because we have to do the Father's will to get into heaven. What is all this about? In the scriptures, what is translated to eternal life in the original text was actually a phrase that says life unto the age. 
to the age, life unto the age. We say eternal life, it originally said life unto the age. It's referring to the age that is to come, the next dispensation after the return of Jesus, New Jerusalem, all of that, really the resurrection. So when it, a lot of times when it says you will gain eternal life, what it's really saying is that you will have a place in the resurrection. You will be resurrected. So you're giving up your life or your soul or your will now so that he can give it back to you in the resurrection. You'll have a better one to come. That's the faith part. You have to be willing to lay down your will now and he'll give you one. He'll give you your will in eternity. You'll have a will. He can trust you in heaven with your will. Remember the beginning, that's what all this was about. He wants us to rule and reign with him in his coming kingdom in eternity, but he has to know that he can trust us with free will. If you give it up now and trust everything he says, then he'll trust you with it then. But if you don't, if you hold on to what you think is right, right now, you will lose your will in eternity, right? There's a scripture that says not to fear men who can only kill the body, but fear God who can kill the soul and the body in hell. And you're like, wait a minute, how can he kill the soul in hell? That's eternal. No, no. Spirit is eternal. The soul is the will. In hell, you will have no free will. You cannot do what you will in hell. He will destroy your will in hell and the physical body. So, that's it says, fear God who can destroy the body and the soul, not the body and the spirit. The spirit is eternal. It will be in torment in hell for all eternity. But you won't be able to do as you will in hell. So if you choose to do what you want to do now and keep your will, you will lose it for eternity in hell. But if you're willing to give up your will now, then you will have it for eternity in heaven and New Jerusalem. That's why Jesus said, be willing to lose your life now to gain it later. But if you try to keep your life now, you'll lose it later. Again, that word life was actually in the original text, soul, the will. Give up your will now, you'll have it later. Try to keep it now, you'll lose it later. So really, this is all about living in faith for the resurrection, which was the faith that Abraham had. There's This passage says that he didn't have faith for a city now. He had faith for a city that was to come. He was looking forward to the promise. Do we have faith for the promise? The promise is the resurrection. The promise is New Jerusalem. The promise is the purpose that we were created for on the other side of this testing. You have to have faith for what he said and trust him. We are not living for this life. We're living for a better one to come. You have to believe this and live in faith for that promise to have endurance, to surrender your will for his in every situation. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says that for if you willingly sin after that you have received the knowledge of the truth. Okay? Willingly. If you of your own free will choose to sin. This means that after you have received Jesus' spirit, there is now grace and power to overcome. So if you go back, it's because you willingly chose. Now the devil is cunning and he's very tricky. 
And sometimes he deceives us and things happen and we don't even realize it. And then God reveals it to us. Oh, we're like, oh my goodness, I was in pride. I was in unforgiveness. And, and he reveal, and immediately you're like, I'm so sorry, Lord, I repent. I realize you showed me that. That's not a willful sin. That's something you were deceived, you fell into. God revealed it, you repented. Now, if he revealed it and you don't want to acknowledge it, then it becomes willful sin. Because in your pride, you're choosing to hold on to something that he's telling you to let go of. But as soon as he reveals it to you, you, you let it go. You break agreement. That's not a willful sin. Because the power is there to overcome it, and you used that power. You said, oh, I'm so sorry, Lord. Forgive me. I rebuke you, Satan. I'm not doing that anymore. That was wrong. That was the wrong response. Okay, I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm not going to get tricked like that again. But willful sin, you knew it was wrong, and you did it anyway. You didn't use the grace that was given you grieved the Holy Spirit. You, of your free will, chose to listen to the enemy. He that sins willfully, after that he has received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. In other words, the blood of Jesus does not cover it. You've lost that cleansing, that atoning. He's not forgiving something that you did on purpose. You have to truly be remorseful and repentant and come away from it and not of your free will choose to do it anymore. Once you choose to leave it, by faith believe that he can give you the power to overcome it. Walk away from it. If you are continuing willfully in it, the blood does not cover it. There is no sacrifice for that sin. But what is it? It says a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. In other words, God considers you one of the enemies because you are obeying and working with and following the instructions of the enemy. Remember, it is a war. If you are listening to the orders of the enemy, then you are on the enemy's side and you will be judged with the adversary. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified. This person was sanctified by the blood of Jesus. But he considered it an unholy thing. Common and have done despite to the spirit of grace. Grace is a spirit. It's a person. It's the Holy Spirit of Jesus. If Jesus is living on the inside of you, and you have chosen to sin, you have taken advantage and thought lightly of his blood and his sacrifice and his power and his ability, you've trodden that blood underfoot, you've made it look worthless. It's a serious thing. It says you've done despite to the spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Paul says, contend for the faith. Take it seriously. Don't sin willy-nilly and think that God is overlooking it. You are trampling on the blood of Jesus. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is not God's will that any should perish. I'm bringing home, as we kind of come 
more to the close of this, the reality that we do have a will. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But Luke 13, 3, you don't have to turn there. Jesus told them that except you repent, you will all likewise perish. So if it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all repent. But Jesus made it clear that many do perish because they don't repent. Then we know that not everybody does God's will. Because people will say, oh, well, it's all God's will, whatever happens. It's, you know, oh, it's just it's God's will. No. God does have a will, but men do not follow God's will most of the time. Most of what happens is not what God wanted to happen the way that it's happening. Now, God will get his way in the end because it's like a chess match and you can't beat him. He knows how to get around all of our perceived intellect. He will humble everyone eventually. But we have a will. The enemy has a will. The fallen have a will. That's why they rebelled. And God has a will. We are in a war of wills. Spoiler alert, God wins. Be on God's side. Give up your will. Don't listen to the enemy's will. Get in alignment with God's will. He wins. Repent of self-will, which is pride, which comes down to doing what you think is right. Because the truth is this, is that if we don't have a will, then we wouldn't have a soul and we wouldn't be alive. I'm going to pull a Pastor Glenn and say that's how stupid the idea that we don't have a free will is. It's a total lack of understanding of what a will even is. Because if you didn't have a will, that would mean you didn't have a soul and you wouldn't be alive. Because the soul is what is when spirit meets flesh. That is the creation. And it is your will. It's all part of it. That's what the war is for. That's what it's all about. But it's kind of like, you know, the Wizard of Oz where they're like, don't look over here, don't look over here. You know, pull the curtain, don't look over here. The devil's saying, you know, the whole issue of the wheel. He's like, don't look over here. You don't even have one. It's not even real. Smoke, smoke, don't look over here. To keep you from seeing what really it's all about. The will is what the war is over. Give it up now and you'll have it forever. Try to keep it now and you'll give it up forever. If you want to highlight the reference Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 24. Jesus said unto his disciples, If a man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life that word life translates the soul, which is the will, shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world but lose his own soul? That's why it says lose his soul, because the word translated to life is the same word for soul. Whosoever shall save his soul in this life will lose it, but whosoever will lose his soul in this life shall find it. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, 
and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So the passage makes more sense when you realize that all of it is really about the soul or the will. He's not talking about your physical life here and then your soul here. It's all one and the same. Be willing to lose your will now that you gain it forever. Be willing to keep it now, you'll lose it forever. But then he warns you, what is it worth if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? What's the point? And then he ends it by reminding us that he's coming to judge everyone according to their works. We're not living for right now. We're living for the age to come. Eternal life, life unto the age. We're living for the resurrection. That means, in practical terms, to give up your will for his, it means that we don't choose what job we work. We seek him for what he wants us to do and where he wants us to be, whether we like it or not. I know you hate the prison, but God's will be done. <laughs> Please kill me quickly. <laughs> Living for the one to come. We don't choose where we live. We don't choose the house we want. We don't choose the town we're in. We seek God for it. We don't choose who we marry. If we are truly living for God, now many people got married before they were saved, so they just got to deal with the consequences of their decisions. But, <laughs> but in reality, if we are saved, we're not supposed to choose who we marry. We seek the Lord and let him make those decisions, and we trust his wisdom. We don't choose our friends. There are people God is going to tell you to separate from. There's people he's going to call you to. There's people he's going to say, you know what? I have an assignment on that person and I need you to pray and intercede and give them this word and you're going to be like, Lord, why? But there's also going to be those that you might think are just, just so great and he's going to say, no, I need you to separate because they're going to come against what I want in your life and they're going to lead you the wrong way. We trust him. We follow his leading. We don't make our own decisions. That's what it means to crucify your will and follow his. We don't choose what we say. Because you all know there was those moments that you started to open your mouth and the Holy Spirit said, Shh! <laughs> shut it. Don't say it. You know, when you was about to make that Facebook post and he said, and he slapped your hand. Well, that's more of those uh, click the three dots and delete. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pass that to we don't choose what we say. We don't choose what we want or what we think. Now thoughts will enter in, but you don't let them all linger. You don't let them stay there. He says take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Christ. So there are things that will come in that immediately you have to say, no, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. I can't think that. Can't think that. <laughs> right and a lot of that comes when the thought when the enemy speaks those things to you and you have to block it right away nope 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 not lingering not letting it in we don't choose what we think we submit to Christ on that 
These things won't happen automatically. Submitting to God's will. You can't just go about and live your life and just go willy-nilly and think it's going to happen automatically. We have to surrender. We have to seek him daily. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God and those that come to God must believe that he is God and know that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Diligently seek him every day. He will give you the instruction and then you follow the leading. If you don't seek him, if you don't commune, if you don't fill that house up, then every voice speaking to you, you're going to go in every direction and listen to everything. In fact, the scripture that says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, take it back to the original uh, language. The word translated to mind actually means spirit. It means a man who's listening to more than one spirit will be unstable in all of his ways. He's, he's doing all these because the spirits influence the soul. Then the soul makes a decision what it's going to listen to and cause the body to act. So if you're listening to all these different voices and spirits, you're going to be unstable, wishy-washy, back and forth. If you're only listening to the Holy Spirit, you're going to be steadfast, straightforward, narrow path. Take every thought captive. Remember that our life is not our own. We do what the Father wills and not what we want. So in understanding this, we can see the simplicity the reality that a sinner is simply a person who does his own will. They're the people bound for hell, which scripture says are those who did not do the will of the Father. So to be a sinner, to go to hell, you don't have to do great horrible sins and murder masses. You just have to do what you want and not what God said. They were self-willed. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9 gives us a description. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh of the lust in uncleanness, despising authority. God's authority is what they're really despising. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They did their own will. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas even angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of things which they do not understand. They shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the rewards of unrighteousness which is eternal damnation, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. These are people amongst the church. These are the many on the wide road that think they're going to heaven, but they're not because they're doing their own will. They're eaten with you, but they are spots on the dress, on the white dress, the white robes of righteousness of the bride. Having eyes full of adultery, they cannot cease from sin, sinning, beguiling unstable souls, unstable souls. And heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, 
which have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beshur, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb donkey speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with the tempest, which is a storm, to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those who were clean escaped from them who live in error. So there were some who were escaped from the error. They were right. But these people have lured them away with lies and with false teachings. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollution of this world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so they had been freed, they had escaped, they had been converted, but yet because they listened to these people, these wolves in sheep's clothing, that convinced them that it was okay to listen to these other voices, these false doctrines. It was okay to sin. It says, they again are entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than after they knew it to turn from the holy commandment that was delivered unto them. They stopped doing what God said was right. They stopped following the teachings of Jesus and they listened to the convincing words of men that convinced them to listen to another spirit. Doctrines of demons. When this happens, the latter end is worse than the first. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog has returned to his own vomit and the sow that was washed to his wallowing in the mire. I want you to think about this. The dog returned to the vomit. When the person was originally saved, they broke agreement with the enemy. They crucified that soul, their will. They gave up what they thought was right. That old will was released. That ghost went, they died. They chose to believe what God said was right. They received the Holy Spirit of Jesus. They repented, they were forgiven, they were cleansed, they received the Holy Spirit, it starts teaching, it starts leading. But then these other people come in and they start teaching something different that doesn't line up with the teachings of Jesus. And they either didn't go take the time to find out from Jesus himself or to get in the word and find out what was right, or they chose to believe what they said because it fluffed their pride and, and told them what they wanted to hear as opposed to what God said was right. And so... It says that they ended up worse than before they went back into sin. And the example given is of a dog who re-eats his vomit. So what happens when a dog vomits? What was filthy inside is cast out. At salvation, you have a deliverance. What was filthy inside, that old spirit, is cast out. But what happened? It chose to go and eat it right back in again. And now the filth has entered back in, and it's worse than it was before. You can choose to take back the same spirits that you were delivered from and more. If you listen to men, to doctrines of demons, and believe anything other than the words of Jesus, you have to give up what you think is right and what everybody else says is right 
and submit to what he said is right. His will be done. God's will in Jesus, Jesus' will in us. That's our connection to heaven. That's how it works. So this is what it really means to surrender. You give up your will. Stop trying to be your own God. And trust. Put your faith in Him, His words, His will, His everything. Hebrews eleven six says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. We have to seek Him. We have to trust that He is God. We have to believe Him. So, in summary, if you're still living your own life, then you aren't saved and you aren't going to heaven. You have to be willing to lose your life now in order to gain it in the one to come. We're not living for this life. We're living for the promise of a better one in the next dispensation. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us therefore go unto him outside of the camp, bearing his reproach. In other words, we're going to have to be separate and different from the world. We're going to have to be like Jesus. He was kicked out of everything. we got to be willing to follow after him, suffering the same reproach if need be. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruits of our lips giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So people won't like you if you teach and preach the truth, if you give up your will and and let Jesus continue to do his work through you. You're going to be treated like he was. But we're not living for this life. So, so be it. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Ecclesiastes is considered one of the greatest books of wisdom. It was written by King Solomon, who prayed and asked God to give him wisdom. And according to God's own description, he was the wisest man that ever lived. He wrote this book of wisdom. And in the end of it, He gives us his final thoughts and conclusions. And he says this, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So God's going to bring it all to judgment. We're all being tested. He's going to look at the fruits of our life and see if we believed what he said. He wants to know if he can trust us in his kingdom. Can he allow you to have free will, free run, free rule, free reign? We're going to rule and reign with Christ if we pass the test. But you're going to have to give up a lot of what you think is good in the moment. You're going to have to trust him because there's a war of wills at play here. That's why we have to have the sword of the word and the shield of faith to be able to stand our ground. If God said it, it's right, and that's it. 
we will stand on it and not be shaken. And if we have failed to do this, then we need to repent. Our God is not a God of mixture. You choose one or the other. You can't have him and your sin. He won't share his glory with another. Jesus told the churches in the book of Revelations that though he was standing at the door and knocking, they had to first break agreement with sin, error, and false doctrine, and then he would come in. Repentance before salvation, faith before grace, death before resurrection. So let us pray. Lord, we come before you right now and we ask that you make this real in our spirit. Father, we repent of every time, circumstance, and situation that we trusted in what we thought was right and not what you said is right. Lord, we surrender our life and our will to you tonight. We choose to crucify that old man and right now in faith by the power of your Holy Spirit and what you did in your crucifixion, Lord, we release that old ghost, that old soul, that old will. We lay it down now. We understand that we have to come before you humbly. There is no salvation for the prideful. You resist the pride, but you give grace to the humble. So we humble before you and acknowledge that we don't know anything. We don't have anything. We can't do anything, but you can do everything. So come and live inside of us. Let your spirit take residence inside of us. Clean house, cast every other thing out. We ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, we want to be born again, born of your spirit. A new soul, the Holy Ghost, equipped with all the power of the kingdom of heaven to do your will, your work in this earth. We lay down everything we want and we commit to pray and to seek you for your will your instruction to ask you before everything that we do to order our steps so that we can do what is pleasing to you, that you can live through us. You can live right now in this life that we might live in the one to come. We believe for the resurrection and that's what we're living for, not for the moment. So Lord, we ask you to come and do this work by your grace and your spirit and your blood in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us today. This program was brought to you by HOWC Media Ministries. For more messages like this or information about our ministry, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.